1: This is
2: the Siecla. Supplemental 19. Fifth Birthday Special. Welcome back, everyone. This is a very special bonus episode celebrating the big milestone the Siecla hit last month. It's Fifth Birthday. Since I launched this podcast on January 22nd, 2019, I've released 60 different regular and bonus episodes, totaling more than 32 hours of audio, and with transcripts containing 375,000 words. The show has been downloaded more than 368,000 times. It's more than I could have ever hoped for when I started this journey, and I owe it all to you, my listeners. You've listened to me blather on for hours about what I half sarcastically call the boring part of French history. You've spread the word. Many of you have backed the show on Patreon, including the latest subscribers, Neil Pound and Sasha. As a way of marking the occasion and saying thanks, I've got what will hopefully be a special treat for you today. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear from a very special guest who will ask me questions that you listeners submitted and also some of his own. This is a guest who is perhaps uniquely qualified to discuss this show, its time period, and the art of podcasting. It's Everett Rummage, who many of you may know as the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. If you're not familiar with Everett's show, you should absolutely check it out. Like the Siecle, it's a serialized narrative history podcast working in order through early 19th century French history. The only difference is Everett is covering the period immediately before the SIECLA begins, featuring a little-known Corsican general named Napoleon Bonaparte. You can find his show at ageofnapoleon.com, or wherever you get podcasts. I'll also have a link in this episode's complete transcript, online at thesieclecom supplemental19. Thank you again to everyone for listening over the years. Thanks also to the Evergreen Podcast Network, of which the SIECLA is a proud member. Now, in typical SIECLA fashion, released one month late, let's get into the anniversary special. Welcome to the show, Everett Rummage.
0: Thanks for having me. I've really been looking forward to this. I'm going to be reading out some listener questions, and then we're going to move on to some of my own questions. First question is from Mark Chapman. He asks, what, if any, impact did French colonies have on the Metropole? I may be forgetting something, but I feel like it hasn't appeared much on the podcast. Did they just lose most in 1814, 15, and then not get back into it for a while? In my historical neck of the woods, 19th century China, their presence was secondary to the British, Portuguese, and Americans, at least until the 1840s and 50s, when they started to assert themselves more.
2: I covered some of this in a very recent episode that may have come out after this question was submitted, episode 36 on The Wreck of the Medusa. France lost a lot of its colonies, both in the 18th century uh, when uh, they lost their American colonies, and then all, they lost others as a result of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars. But they got some back in 1814, 1815, after the fall of Napoleon, and then sort of began a process of building up a new colonial empire. And where my narrative is right now, that's just beginning. In episode 36, I covered Senegal, which at the time of the narrative was just a a couple of trading posts clustered along the coast, but is in the process of growing up into a uh, full-on colonial empire. So you know, that has not been a huge part of the show during the narrative that's been talking about the Bourbon Restoration. They've, France has had colonies. They've been important in specific ways. Their colonial interests have been an important lobby group when pressing for national policy. But the the role of Francis Collins is only going to increase as the show goes on.
0: I would just add that, you know, historians sometimes talk about a first French colonial empire and a second French colonial empire, which I guess is a bit confusing because there's also the first empire and second empire in France, and these are totally different. But it's interesting, you know, your, your show really is kind of in that transition zone between the two. God, by the late 19th century, France had a huge, a huge swath of the world under its control, but it was... Mostly not the same areas that they had been controlling, you know, 100 years earlier.
2: Yeah, in the the last couple episodes, I've just just begun to bring the colonial empire uh, sort of onto the stage, talking about Senegal in episode 36, and now Algeria uh, in the last couple episodes, uh, which to really be the foundation of the second French colonial empire, which is ultimately going to grow to control a huge swath of West Africa, large parts of Southeast Asia, and lots of various places around the world, which very different from Louisiana and Acadia and Quebec and the Mississippi area that they used to control in North America before Losing that to the British, not to mention Haiti, of course, very important. But France is a major power and they're a maritime power. And this is the time of history when large maritime powers were in the business of seizing colonies around the world. And that's only going to become more important as the show goes on.
0: Next question is also from Mark Chapman. He asks What do you do for your day job? Does it inform the podcast
2: at all? So my day job is a journalist. The exact nature of the journalism I do has shifted a bit over the years. I've covered politics, urban policy, currently working in survey journalism, polls right now. And that doesn't impact the, the sort of the content very much. But I think that gives me a lot of skills that really translate well to the history podcast world. Being able to write for a popular audience about topics that may be fairly complicated. That's something that was a daily part of my job, covering obscure bills of the legislature or complicated disputes and and stuff like that. As well as, you know, I've accumulated some skills uh, with data and, and making maps that have helped flesh out the website and skills conducting interviews, which are not necessarily natural for people. And to the degree that I have interviews in the show, which I do and enjoy those. I think that the experience that I have in my day job of how to steer a conversation and how to draw information out of people really adds to the show. Of course, you know, if I'd come from a more academic background, that would have brought other skills to bear uh, that would have steered the show in different directions. But my day job as a journalist really does uh, have some synergies.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that's actually my background as well. I was not doing that immediately before the podcast. I, uh, I I'm quite uh, impressed by your ability to to stay employed in that industry. It is not easy, but uh, yeah, I, I I agree totally. I feel like I learned a lot in my days. Um, you know, that 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 age old question of what does the average person want to know about this? What's kind of the the angle that makes it interesting to you know someone with no other connection to it than you know, picking up your publication. It's a way to think that um, I think has helped me a lot on the show. I would also say the job I had immediately before this, I was working at a hotel. The main skill that I picked up there was just being able to sit at a desk and read for hours and hours at a time without stopping.
2: (laughs) There are times when I've wished that I had a job that didn't require me to think all day and I could just spend all my thoughts on the podcast. But then I realized where that line of thought is taking me. And Count my blessings that I have a job that keeps me engaged and develops new skills.
0: True, true. All right. Next, Daniel Ostrovsky asks, We're now five years in and approaching the July Revolution. That's a period of 15 years out of the intended total of 100. At that rate, we might not be finished until 2050. How do you feel now about the scope of the show? Does it still seem like a realistic goal?
2: I feel this a lot, Daniel. <laughs> Certainly the, the possibility that I will not actually take the narrative all the way to 1914 or won't take the narrative all the way 1914 at the same level of detail that I've been doing is in the background of my mind. I won't consider this a, a failure if I don't complete the intended scope of the show. I feel like the work that I've done stands on its own, even if I don't reach that target, but I still want to. And I'm always sort of hoping that I'll be able to pick up the pace. Ultimately, I think it's mostly just gonna come down to whether I'm able to devote more time to it. Right now I'm doing this in my spare time, working a regular 40 hour a week job, writing the podcast in evenings and weekends. And with the length and complexity of the episodes that I'm writing, it's, it's very hard for me to output at a faster pace than I have been doing. But theoretically it's possible that the money I'm getting from the show could get to the point where I'm able to afford to devote more time to it, which could enable me to pick up the pace, which is maybe the only chance that I'll finish the show before I end up having to retire.
0: I am doing the show full time now. And even for me, you know, I stick to a pretty rigid release schedule. But still, it's, um, you know, I got to say for the listeners, you guys really have no idea. You know, when you're when you're really digging into this stuff, there's so much I mean, I could be going a, a quarter of the speed and not run out of things to talk about. So it's really just an endless font of interesting stuff.
2: Did you notice when you went full-time that your pace picked up? Or did you just compensate by making your episodes more complex?
0: Well, I sort of fell into a schedule. When I first started doing the show, I was doing an episode every two weeks, or trying to anyway, and uh, that was just grueling. Sometimes I would do a really big episode, and I would kind of feel the need to you know, step away from it for a couple of days. And so I'd take, you know, three, four, five days and, and not do any work on it. And then it would be like a week until I had to have another one out. And it was just too much, especially with, you know, having to do, uh, I was in school at the time and having to do that at the same time, it was just burned me out really quick. So now I'm on this monthly release schedule, which I think has helped me, you know, the, the episodes are longer, but there's roughly the same amount of time editing So um, sound editing, that is. So that's helped me be a little more efficient. And once I got on that monthly schedule and started actually doing the show full time, I haven't missed one yet, so.
2: Well, that's uh, certainly not something that I can say about the Siakla. I've definitely had uh, some missed episodes from time to time. Longtime listeners will remember that I originally started releasing every two weeks as well, which lasted a few months until I burned through the backlog I'd sort of started with, and very quickly slipped to once a month, and then occasionally not even that. You know, I I make the promise that I'll release an episode every month, some flexibility for slight delays or something like that. But, you know, to keep myself honest, if I miss a month, then I suspend the Patreon donations. Plenty of patrons have said that, like, they're happy to donate even when I don't release. But to me, it's just a way of keeping myself honest and giving myself an incentive to buckle down and keep it out. Because most of the time, again, occasionally I have big trips or uh, projects that might get in the way. But most of the time, it's just me not focusing enough to stick to the schedule that I've set for myself. But it's, it's a constant struggle for me.
0: When the show first started, I had a very clear idea, you know, I almost had it sketched out episode by episode what I was gonna be talking about. So it wasn't too hard to stay on schedule, I was sort of just filling in the gaps. But then I eventually kind of, you know, ran out of runway there. And um, it is tough, you know, I feel bad complaining about it, because on a certain level, you know, my job is just to kind of hang out and read books and write. But, you know, you do that for years and years, and it, it does wear on you, you know, it's, writing is not the kind of thing that you can do you know like when i work to service jobs you know sometimes you feel like crap and you're not you know your head is not in it but you show up and you do your job but it's not a big deal writing is the kind of thing you can kind of do that a little bit when you're writing but you need to be you know to do good work consistently you need to be rested and energetic and inspired and it doesn't always come easy and you can get burned out really easily so i uh I would implore your listeners to (laughs) have patience.
2: (laughs) There there are some writers I've met and read about who can just like, you know, stick to a schedule and they wake up and they write for three hours in the morning every day, each and every day and stay productive. And. I view them as a, a kind of space alien. <laughs> it's, it's just a skill that is totally alien to me.
0: I am one of those people. But oftentimes when I sit down and do my three hours of writing, it's basically staring at my computer and I write like four paragraphs. And I do that five days in a row and get nothing done. And then on the sixth day, you know, the dam bursts and I write eight pages and makes up for the the five days where I got nothing done. It's just how it goes sometimes.
2: That's generally how my uh, writing process goes as well, except slightly less diligent.
0: Next question is also from Daniel Ostrovsky. He asks, what is your favorite subject that's yet to be covered on the show?
2: I guess for me, the topic that I'm most excited about, one of the ones that sort of inspired me to pick up the show, and we'll see if and when I get here, is in the 1870s, in the, the aftermath of the fall of Napoleon III and the uh, Commune of Paris. There's this, this fascinating period where the voters of France elected a majority of monarchists to the National Assembly, which was d- debating, like, what kind of government will France have? But even though there was a majority of people who wanted to bring back the monarchy, that majority was split between which monarch they wanted to bring back. And because they couldn't agree on which king, France ended up getting the Third Republic, just as sort of the, the lesser of two evils for both of these monarchist factions.
0: Yeah, that is a fascinating story. And I, I just want to throw in from my own two cents, I am also very much looking forward to you covering the Commune whenever
2: that takes place. I force myself to stop buying books about the Third Republic. Like, <laughs> there's so many interesting stuff out there, but like, ultimately, it's going to be years and years before I get to them. For my, the sake of my budget and my groaning bookshelves, I, I just had to say, I no more books about Dreyfus. I've got to wait until at least I can see it in the distance from my narrative right now, which is uh gonna be a long time.
0: That's funny. I have the exact same problem where I something catches my eye and it's about like, you know, the Waterloo campaign and it's like so far in the distance from me and I have to be disciplined about it and not because I could very easily spend hundreds of dollars a month on books for the show that I will not read for two,
2: three, four years. You're saying that people have written some books about Napoleon? <laughs> The obscure campaign in Belgium in 1815, I think I would have heard about that.
0: <laughs> all right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Next question is from uh, Jean-Christophe Rondi I'm curious about your French. From what I can hear, it is quite good. And I was wondering if you use it in your day-to-day life, either to help research the podcast or even just for mundane purposes like entertainment.
2: Jean-Christophe, bless you, but my French is not good. <laughs> uh, it was a one-time passable. I studied French for a decade in school. I studied abroad for a semester uh, in Aix-en-Provence. And uh, at that point, as I sort of got on the plane to come home at the end of that semester, I was proficient in French. I could hold hold conversations, could watch French TV and movies and understand what they were saying and all that. But over the the decade since then, my skills have slowly atrophied. What I have left and what I, what I still focus on is some basic pronunciation of names and phrases and being able to read formal early 19th century uh, political treatises. Those are the things that are directly relevant for the show, to be able to comb through a diary or a, a pamphlet from the time and skim through and extract the important parts to do a, a quick translation of a poem someone wrote or something like that. Obviously, with the aid of Google Translate and other tools that are available now. I really wish my French were better. In, an, in a perfect world, I I would be uh, proficient or fluent in French. But you know, f- languages always came a little difficult for me. I was never willing to, to put in like the grind to really master them and practice them on a daily basis. I've just done my best to fake it as best I can, and uh, I'm glad to see I fooled at least one person. <laughs>
0: That's funny you say that. That's almost exactly the same story for me. Uh, I I studied abroad in Brussels, not in X. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I can still speak kind of okay, but I've totally lost the rhythm for listening to other people, which I guess would make me a complete bore to be around other people in in
2: French. Mine is sort of the other way around. I'm best at reading French right now and probably second best at listening and then speaking and, and last writing. I've, I've sort of lost all the formal grammar necessary to write fluent French. Uh, I will say that when I, when I started the show, I expected to get a lot more criticism of my French pronunciation skills than I have. I expected that was going to be a, a regular critique I got, and it, it largely hasn't been. The critiques have mostly focused on my release schedule, which is entirely on me. But I'm glad that I've at least managed to pronounce things adequately enough to not set people off.
0: I uh, occasionally get people who are angry at me for using... To me, I could never call him Napoleon on the podcast. Obviously, that's what his name was and what everyone called him and what everyone knew him as. But it just feels wrong because we are so used to that English Napoleon. Same with I, I would never call it Paris. It's bizarre to me to, to you know in an English discourse to use the unfamiliar French pronunciation of something, but I occasionally get people who are angry about that, um, and they're almost always not French people. I get like Germans or Swedish people or Danish people who who want me to use the French pronunciation that they're used to, which I don't know it seemed odd I wasn't expecting that when i when I started the show.
2: I made sure at the very beginning to just be very clear that the most common terms I was going to pronounce in the English manner, Napoleon, Paris, I refer to King Charles and not King Charles, but for the, the less well-known terms, I've tried to stick to the French pronunciations as best I can.
0: I'll say this, lucky for you, the French didn't go to Poland <laughs> in, the, in the period <laughs> you're talking about, because that was something, I, I try to make an effort with with all the pronunciation of foreign language on the show, you know. At least, you know, look it up and and, and try to figure it out so that I can at least approximate it. Uh, But boy, Polish was tough.
2: I've definitely gone on social media every now and then to ask people like, hey, uh, where's the accent placed on this name? People are very helpful there.
0: There's always someone who knows. I don't think I've ever asked a question on, you know, put it out to the audience that hasn't gotten exactly what I was looking for back, like within a few hours. It's pretty amazing.
1: History is the
0: greatest adventure story.
1: If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com
0: or wherever you get your podcasts. Next question is from, oh, next question is from Derek, the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast. He asks, with regards to the big screen, many films taking place in 19th century Europe tend to invoke Napoleon Bonaparte to some capacity or another. If given unlimited creative control and budget, which events or characters of your podcast would you pick for a film or television adaptation? Napoleon, Napoleon,
2: Napoleon, shut up about Napoleon. (laughs) Nobody cares. Uh, No, uh, uh, Napoleon's great, obviously a a topic of great interest. I understand why people focus on Napoleon, even if I wish that certain directors would maybe do a better job in telling their story (laughs) of Napoleon. We'll see how that director's cut is. I know there's been a French film covering the, the shipwreck of the Medusa, which I, I covered in a recent episode, but that's a, an obvious, really accessible entry point that could easily be adapted into an English-language uh, film or just an, another French-language film with more modern effects. Always game for uh, another um, maritime uh, naval uh, TV show or movie. You know, it's, it's, it's tough having spent the past five years covering the Bourbon Restoration, picking up immediately after the most exciting part and going on from there. I'm covering the, the, the boring parts of 19th century French history, which does have some shortcomings when looking for good ways to adapt it into a popular film or movie. Certainly the life of Talleyrand, which goes into my period, is an obvious one. And there's this little known book whose climax focuses on a revolt in Paris in 1832 called Les Miserables. That, <laughs> although I found that many people think that Les Miserables is actually about the French Revolution, 1789 one which is one of the the real opportunities of the topic that I cover is being able to use that as an entry point and introduce people to the the real history behind one of the books that they know and love.
0: Yeah, you know that book and subsequent adaptations of that book. It's funny that 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 event it's not one of the hallmark revolutions, shall we say. It's not on the top 5.
2: <laughs> no, it was it was Unsuccessful short, and I think it was Mike Duncan who said that it would be totally forgotten now if Victor Hugo hadn't picked it up and used it uh, as the the climax for his most famous book
0: yeah, and going back to what you said at first, I always thought um, a, a funny alternate title for your podcast would be there's a, a Metternich quote where um, he, he wrote you know his own memoirs of, of the Napoleonic period and at the at the very end he basically says something like that is how you know the events of The Napoleonic era ended. Everything else belongs to ordinary history. (laughs) I always thought that would be a good alternate title for your podcast, Ordinary History. But I I actually think that um, that's part of what I like about your show is that it's not sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of playing the hits, you know, whereas you're digging into stuff that I think is even to a lot of fans of of French history, not super well known, but in many ways, just as interesting, you know, maybe not quite as outrageous as the stuff I'm covering, but interesting in its own way, in particular, uh, you know, listening to your your recent episodes about the run up to uh, 1830. If you're looking for kind of uh, models of our own history, that's probably a more fruitful era to look at than the most exceptional period of modern times. Uh,
2: yeah, no, I, I will add that you know this is, this is about Napoleon, but I, I do think there could be a great movie of alternate history focusing on an attempt to break Napoleon out of St. Helena, a, a naval raid. Obviously, this never happened, although people did talk about it and the British were paranoid that it was going to happen. But I feel like there's a great story there that that could be told for sort of an alternate history movie about a ship trying to break Napoleon off and escape to America while being pursued by the British Navy or something like that.
0: Oh, yeah. There's that rumor, which, you know... People ask me about this all the time, and I've looked into it. I've never found good documentation of it, but it's an extremely prevalent rumor, shall we say, that Lord Cochrane, the famous British daredevil naval officer, supposedly thought about doing that when he was on his way to South America to uh, aid the South American independence movements. And supposedly he sort of had a mind to do that, and then on the way found out that Napoleon had died on St. Helena. So that is such, because Cochrane is also, I mean, talk about a
2: character. Larger than life figure, yeah.
0: William Holt asks, my question concerns Karl Marx's works about the politics of France during the 19th century. I've often heard historians gushing about the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, but this gushing has almost always been in relation to the introduction of the book, in which Marx discusses man's relationship to history, and not so much about the analysis of France in particular. What are your thoughts on this work? Do they hold up as a good analysis of the events they cover?
2: Uh, well, I've got good news and bad news for you, William. The bad news is I have not done a detailed analysis of Marx's 18th Brumaire beyond, you know, the famous introduction and the, you know, first as tragedy, then as farce, quote, which is such a great line. The good news is I am speaking with someone who has done a detailed <laughs> analysis of that. Are you able to give maybe a brief answer to William's question here?
0: Yeah. So like anything with Marx, his writing is extremely dense. It's actually not a very long essay, but there's a lot to unpack, shall we say? I'll try to choose my words carefully so that you don't get angry emails from grad students. But basically, to put the essay in context, Marx has this theory of history. That's kind of the whole basis of his philosophy. Not that history is sort of an A to B progressive event, but that there's sort of a formula to how history works. And he'd been criticized by people who'd said... Hey, look at what happened in France in 1848, and these will be you know, spoilers to your audience. To make a very long story short, there had been a, a revolution, and when the dust settled, the forces that were in control of the country were basically the mainstream left. You know, Today, we'd probably call them progressives. These were sort of left-wing liberals and moderate socialist types.
2: The center left.
0: Right. Then a series of strange events occur that culminate in the return of the empire. Napoleon's nephew becomes the emperor. And basically people said, hey, Marx, you know, you say that there's this sort of formula to history. According to your philosophy, shouldn't it be impossible for a progressive republic to sort of devolve into a more authoritarian, more sort of traditional form of hierarchy? The essay is Marx saying... Well, if you think that, then you've misunderstood my theory. And actually, if you look closely at the events in France, you'll see that things played out much as my theory would have predicted. And then he goes through the events and sort of explains this sort of unexpected, strange outcome happened because of sort of the positions of the different classes of French society uh, and how they came into conflict. And that basically, in Marx's opinion, the progressive forces, in quotes, sort of couldn't get their act together, and there was kind of a stalemate. Because of the way that the Republic was set up, the only person who really could break the stalemate was Bonaparte. Marx is sort of using these events to talk about his philosophy. It's not a work of journalism. But I think it's he does a pretty good job both of defending his philosophy and of sort of analyzing the events.
2: Do you think it holds up as actual history, or is it mostly of interest sort of from a more meta historiography perspective of understanding how people at the time were writing about the events?
0: Uh, I would say more the latter. Probably a modern person would be best served by like reading a book or listening to a podcast, shall we say, (laughs) about these events and then reading 18 Brumaire to sort of see how He's less focused on sort of telling you what happened. He's sort of assuming you know what happened. You know, this was written for intellectuals and radicals to read. What's really interesting is sort of how he's claiming things are happening, not how he's describing the events. Next question is from San Kendrick. My question is about the French relationship to border regions, especially to what is today Belgium. You briefly mentioned in the last episode that a common critique of the Algiers campaign was that the forces would have been better spent reclaiming some of the Rhine departments. What was the general attitude towards these regions during the Restoration? Were they viewed as integral parts of France that had been lost? Or was this more of a political maneuver than a genuine foreign policy goal? What kind of relationship did France have with the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and the German Rhineland states? What kind of cross-border interchange existed? What tension? And lastly, were there people across the border, i.e. outside France, who thought they should be brought into the French kingdom?
2: One way to think about it is that in the Bourbon Restoration, these arguments that France's borders should extend to the Rhine were more about geopolitics and national security and less about ethno-nationalism. This was not an an argument that, like, these people are rightfully French and therefore must be included in our borders, in the same way that sometimes over the subsequent history you would get wars to try to bring a group of people who were seen as culturally in common with a, a country into that country's borders. It was more that, to be secure, France needed to have a defensible border on its northeast frontier, and the defensible border was running along the Rhine River. France's other borders are the ocean or mountains, the Pyrenees, the Alps, the Jura Mountains. It was widely seen and would be demonstrated in subsequent centuries that this northeastern border was France's vulnerable point, and the French thought that in order to plug that, they needed to annex the often non-French speaking territories leading up to the Rhine. You know, the French government often had friendly relations with the actual polities, the states that were governing these areas, even if they would have been totally happy to annex them and extinguish them from existence. Or partition them, uh, etc. Uh, there's certainly a lot of cross-border trade and cultural interchange. A lot of French political exiles went to Belgium. There were a lot of French opposition exile newspapers that were printed in Brussels and sort of smuggled across the border back into France. But it was much more of a high level concern that French strategists and geopoliticians thought that this was a goal that the country needed to accomplish and and also a wrong that had been inflicted on France when these countries were taken away from France in the Vienna settlement at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So people felt salty about that uh, and wanted to reverse that injustice that they felt and restore these areas that had been part of France, if often only briefly. But it wasn't a sort of a nationalistic yearning in the way that we'll see in uh, subsequent decades and centuries.
0: Yeah, that's very well put. Um, I would just add that you mentioned quite rightly that this is more, of, more about geopolitics than some kind of ethno-nationalist greater France. And I, I would just add that you know, the French government was quite confident that they could turn other Europeans into Frenchmen. We got to get to the river. And once we get there, the people there will be grateful to... <laughs> you know, have the blessings of French civilization, and, and that'll sort itself out, which <laughs> maybe its own brand of sort of chauvinism there that's maybe in, in some ways kind of peculiar to France.
2: To be fair, large parts of France at this time did not speak Parisian French, speaking either other dialects, or often in the case of Alsace-Lorraine, people were speaking Germanic dialects.
0: Yeah, and in this era, the Alsatians, the uh, the people further to the north, the um, uh, Flemish-speaking people, often had, you know, felt no contradiction about, oh, of course I'm a Frenchman. I just don't speak the language and sort of belong to a different culture, but why would you question that I'm a Frenchman? Of course, look at my passport.
2: I believe there's a famous quote from Napoleon speaking about some of his Alsatian soldiers saying, along the lines of, let them have their dialect, they fight like Frenchmen. Yes,
0: yes. And that was also, that's one of my, um, spoiler for my show, Marshal Ney was was one of these people. He was brought up in a, in a bilingual household, speaking French and German equally, and uh, he was born in a, uh, a town that, in 1815, wounded up on the other side of the border, Sarlouis, which is today in Germany. And Marshal Ney's lawyers, when he was on trial for treason, begged him to... Take the uh, technicality defense, which is, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a German now, right? You know, what right does this French court have to try me? And Ney uh, refused. I mean, he just, you know, a guy like that could not go into a courtroom and swear that he was not a Frenchman. That was just, that was just unthinkable for someone like
2: him. On the one hand, like, it's, it's a certain arrogance in the fr- part of the French to assume that obviously everybody, if they had the choice, would choose to be French. But it wasn't entirely conjured up out of thin air. There was a real cultural pull to France at this time.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, in, in Napoleonic times, there's also just the, this is less true in the period you're talking about and would become less true as the period goes on. But the superiority of the French system over the sort of cobbled together out of the remnants of the old regime with some new ideas grafted on types of governments that existed in the rest of Europe. The French were uh, were very lucky in that respect that that attitude was not drawn totally out of thin air, shall we
2: say. You even saw that in the, the period that I've covered in the Restoration, Louis Eighteenth encouraged his Bourbon cousins in Italy and Spain that guys get with the times, write a constitution, it won't hurt you that much, and it will make your rule much more modern and strong. And it was very frustrated that the somewhat less intelligent Bourbon kings in Naples and Spain refused to go along with him.
0: It's so funny. That's so. It's so the opposite of the view you get, kind of the popular view of the Bourbon. That's one of the one of the fascinating aspects of that this period is that they are kind of walking that weird line where they are, you know, the, the revanchist old order, but they're also, you know, let's let's be honest here. We've got some real advantages with this system we've got now.
2: They kept a huge amount of the legacy they inherited from the Revolution and Napoleon. Louis the Eighteenth, in many ways, though. His power was checked by an elected parliament and a constitution. Uh, In many ways, his ability to dictate what went on in his uh, kingdom was much stronger than his older brother, Louis XVI, ever had. Because of the the much more centralized and efficient Napoleonic bureaucracy that he inherited. And despite a couple of the more radical ultra-royalist voices, decided, no, we're going to keep this. It's
0: so funny how uh, the the ironies that history foists on people... All right. So to close out, I actually had a couple questions of my own. So why don't we delve into those? Hit me. Before you started the show, when you were still in the planning stages, were there any stories or anecdotes that you were particularly looking forward to telling?
2: It's ironic given what I've spent the last five years doing, but when when I sort of picked this period, I I first decided I wanted to do a history podcast and then sort of sat down and decided, well, what topic could I do? And the, the sort of stories that inspired me to pick 19th Century France we're all about the third republic. Mm. That was what I was excited about telling, it was the era I was excited to get to, and I thought, oh, I've just got to get through the, the first half of the century uh, to get to the interesting stuff. You know, I mentioned, you know, that in an earlier question, the the 1870s drama where France ended up getting a republic despite a majority of the deputies preferring a monarchy, the Dreyfus affair obviously, some of the the big cultural shifts, the ed- battles over education and the church and the third republic. I was very eager to get to all of that. And somewhat to my surprise, I I found that this early period has been equally as fascinating as I've delved deeper into it beyond the sort of the the surface level summary that you can sometimes get in some high level history books. The Bourbon Restoration and the periods that are about to follow in the narrative are really interesting to me. And I wasn't fully expecting that when I went into this.
0: That's interesting. I've, I've very much had the same Experience where there's been parts of the story that I thought going in would be kind of oh, I got to check the box and get through this so I can get to the interesting stuff and then when I actually get to it and start really de- you know delving into to dedicated research rather than you know reading about something in a in a more general book you realize that it's got just as much as the parts that you thought were going to be interesting going in so I, I definitely know know what you're talking about there. Are there any personalities you particularly enjoy writing about? Or on the other hand, any personalities that you particularly dislike?
2: On the latter side, I'm not sure if there's any that I truly dislike. Uh, Obviously, you know, some of the people in this period are more unpleasant than others, but I I think they're all interesting in in their own way. The two that really stand out in the positive side from two very different generations, although both active at this point in my narrative, uh, one is Chateaubriand, Mm -hmm. the writer and statesman, who is just this fascinating character who is on the one hand immensely talented and also knows he's immensely talented and is immensely arrogant. (laughs) If you read his writings, his memoirs uh, from Beyond the Grave or other works that he's written, just bleeds through. Even when he's putting on his best face and completely controlling what he's saying, his arrogance just bleeds through the page in a way that I'm sure was very frustrating to people who had to deal with him on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I know it was very frustrating, but it just makes him a very compelling character to read about. And of course, he's at the center of all the action, both in government and then out of government. I think Joseph de Villal said of the 1820s French politics that you can't form a government with Chateaubriand, but you also can't form a government without Chateaubriand.
0: (laughs) He's also very much of the the era as an intellectual. His more abstract ideas are are very much of, of the age, I think.
2: He's an interesting spot because on the one hand, he's an ultra-royalist. He's committed to the monarchy and to a more traditional conception of the monarchy, but he also has this liberal strain to his thought, especially in areas around freedom of the press, and he ends up in opposition for a lot of the 1820s. You you can never quite pigeonhole him. He's not purely on one side or the other. He's on his own side, and he's sometimes very frustrated that other people don't come to what is obviously the correct position on these issues, but he's, he's just a very original thinker for the period.
0: That's something I always thought reading about him. The fact that he had been a counter-revolutionary émigré, he'd been a sort of moderate Bonapartist, he'd been an inveterate opponent of Napoleon, a conservative critic. You'd think that a guy who had changed his mind so many times might have learned a little humility.
2: <laughs> no, that, that word cannot be associated with Chateaubriand. <laughs> He would argue, I'm sure, that, uh, as, as people are often want to do, that uh, they didn't change. I didn't leave my party, my party left me. Right, right, yeah. People like to see themselves as being internally consistent and the system around them becoming more radical and leaving them behind. The other figure who's in a very different position in his career is Adolphe Thiers, Yeah. Who, at this point, is sort of this irrepressible, energetic, young, somewhat radical journalist, not in the most radical, but, you know, on the more progressive side. And he is sort of at the beginning of this extremely long career that we'll see him at the center of French politics for most of the next half century. He's just such a dynamic character and such a complicated character who's going to do some things that uh, I'm sure me saying this is going to probably get some angry letters from people. His actions with the Paris Commune in particular have made him something of a bête noir for a certain uh, type of history fan. But I, I think that exactly that is what makes him so interesting. This is a guy who, on the one hand, crushed the Paris Commune, and on the other hand, helped midwife the French Third Republic into being. He has brought down monarchies and defended monarchies. He has opposed republics and created republics. It's a very, very long and interesting and often contradictory career. And I'm I'm really looking forward to following him. And in many ways he's gonna be sort of a viewpoint character for the foreseeable future of the show because he's he's gonna be at the center of events for many years to come.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Personally, I, I love those ambiguous characters like like Thierre I feel weird saying I love Thierre. I mean, <laughs> what he what he did to the Paris Commune, and you say he crushed it. I mean, that was one of the the worst state mass killings in history when it happened. I and mean, it was really bloody.
2: He's not like a character like Lafayette. You can look at and say, well, he's always trying to do the right thing. Yes. He can sometimes be bumbling, but he's, it's easy, at least for an American, to always view Lafayette as sort of a heroic character.
0: He's always trying to do the right thing, even when the right thing is the wrong thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thiers is, is a much more ambiguous uh, personality. Also, like, certainly very full of himself, very confident, not without reason, uh, as with Chateaubriand. The very same personality factors that propelled him at a young age to the center of French politics are also going to be the ones that prevent him from staying at the center of French politics. Because again, like Cedric Briana, he's the kind of person who you can't work without, but you also can't work with.
0: And I'll say this for him as well. He wrote history. Yes. And actually quite good history. And I always feel like, you know, it's like how filmmakers love making films about making films. And I feel like people who write history are always attracted to historical figures who have tried their hand at writing history.
1: History is complicated. or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: Have your views changed at all as a result of researching and writing the show, either of France in particular or the world at large?
2: I think that the biggest thing that I've learned is is sort of this growing appreciation for the often overlooked period of history of the Bourbon Restoration, which, I, again, I've found much more interesting and in-depth than I expected to, and much more complicated. It's, it's often sort of reduced to this caricature as uh, sort of this last gasp reactionary attempt to reconstruct the Ancien Régime. And there's a reason that that's the stereotype. There's There's some of that there. Mm-hmm. But the reality is so much more complicated with so many more different perspectives and different individual actors with different goals that are uh, sometimes conflicted and sometimes were going in the same direction. And even the ones who you know were doing the most to try to sort of undo the changes of the revolution didn't want to go all the way back. Even the, the Polignacs and the Charles X, who are certainly the most reactionary side of French politics in the Restoration, even their views were somewhat complex and couldn't just be reduced to you know undo the revolution.
0: Yeah, not to answer my own question, but I feel like that gels very much with my own thinking, which is doing my show has really given me an appreciation for just unending complexity of these questions, which leads me to think that, you know, I've never really been a great man theory of history type person. And that's become even more true doing this show. You know, I really gained an appreciation for just how little leeway political actors on a, on a big national or, or international stage, how little leeway they actually have to sort of do as they see fit. You know, they're, they're all kind of just responding to limited information, uh, you know, trying to head off crises, trying to pick between two bad options. Uh, it's really not individuals who are in the driver's seat of history. It's, it really is things like economics, social forces, geopolitics, things that are outside of anyone's control. It is often talked about the the French Revolution. You know, were they right to overthrow the king? I mean, it's almost like asking, was a hurricane right to hit the coast? These natural events led to it occurring. It's sort of silly to talk about it in terms of people's wills. You know, there's just so many complicated forces that lead to things happening.
2: I'm probably a little bit less structuralist than you, closer to you than not. Certainly, I think these big structural factors are a, a huge and underappreciated reason why things happen. The big takeaway I've had in this area is is more in the area of pushing me towards a big picture sort of view of history where the commonalities really jump out. Obviously, you know, when you look at history, there are certain trends and things and themes that pop up over and over again. And then there are details that are different, completely, totally different from situation to situation. And you you can emphasize one side or the other, the long story or the details reading about the Bourbon Restoration, the this, this period that on the surface has almost nothing to do with the modern world, I've been struck by how easy it is to make comparisons between this very different political and cultural system and what we have today. While there are often huge and important differences that need to be understood to properly understand what's happening, there's so many commonalities too that are human nature and how people pursue power and how they attach themselves to ideologies, how they, they form these complicated ideologies, all these things that are, are to some degree timeless.
0: Yes, I know the feeling. You know, to go back to 18 Brumaire, people make history, but
2: not as they please, as, as Marx wrote. As long as I've got you here, we should talk a little bit about the sort of very similar periods of history, overlapping periods of history that we're covering, which are often, again, sort of treated very separately. You know, my story sort of picks up with the, the first downfall of Napoleon, and your story will more or less climax with the, the downfall of Napoleon. 1814, 1815 is not such a cut-and-dry Dividing line in history is it's often treated by historians like us and other people. What are your thoughts as someone who's really researched the Napoleonic period, the ways in which the Napoleonic period informs and relates to the Bourbon Restoration period that followed it?
0: I noticed this particular when I was writing about the Concordat with the Catholic Church. Napoleon is sort of this, sort of traditionally portrayed as this watershed figure where he's the guy who institutionalizes the revolution, well, institutionalizes some elements of the revolution and does away with the more radical, more eccentric aspects of the revolution. Particularly early in his reign, there's sort of this image of he's settling accounts, he's tying up loose ends, he's sort of bringing certain processes to an end. And uh, the Concordat's a great example of that, you know, that there's this you know, period of, of terrible religious conflict in France, and then Concordat aside, signed, that ends. Well, you look at it up close, a lot of these things do not really end. A lot of these loose ends are not tied up. You know, Napoleon is a brilliant politician, and because of the sort of strange circumstances in which he came to power, he had a lot of leeway to impose settlements on certain outstanding issues in French politics. But a lot of cases, you look at it up close, he's really only kind of pausing these processes. He's only sort of temporarily shutting up everyone in a certain in a debate. A lot of the issues that Napoleon, quote unquote, settled are very much back on the main stage, you know, within a few years of his uh, downfall. So I see a lot of continuity the most obvious is the personalities. I mean, you know, I listening to your show, I, I hear names that I, I know well from my own research all the time. But that's just the most kind of obvious and visible continuity. The social structure, the broader socio, political, and economic changes that are going on during the period of the revolution and the empire are pretty much just continuing on. There's really in a lot of ways more continuity than there is rupture between all these different various governments and various periods of history to the point where, you know, maybe that's the secret of their success, right? Governments come and go, the country stays the same, right?
2: I was certainly struck researching for a recent episode of the French economy that several people said that the French economy in 1830 had more in common with the French economy in uh, 1750 than it did with the French economy just a couple of decades later in 1850, because the, the railroad revolution was what really changed everything. Yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It was not the shifting regimes from republic to empire to monarchy and back and forth. Daily life often stayed the same. At a non-elite level, and it wasn't until the railroad came along, and then the telegraph and other the industrial revolution that daily life was really, truly, fundamentally transformed.
0: Look at what the, what are the sources of uh, a social order? Land ownership is a big one, and you know, as you've talked about on your show, you know, the idea that the old order was just restored when Napoleon fell is totally wrong. Because when you look at those really deep things like land ownership and things that are the basic building blocks of the social order and the economic order, there's a lot more continuity than change, I think.
2: It's interesting you mentioned the Concordat. When I covered French religion in episode 27, one of the interesting things was the, the struggles that Louis Eighteenth had in trying to negotiate a new agreement with the Catholic Church, and that the ways in which Napoleon's Concordat, even though both sides hated it, proved surprisingly sticky. By this point, uh, you know, ten to fifteen years later, and it was very difficult to undo, and required multiple rounds of diplomatic negotiations, and you know, there were blowups, and ultimately they ended up with a situation that more tinkered around the edges than uprooting it. Even though both the uh, French monarchy and the the Pope would have loved nothing more than to go back to an earlier system, it was just it was too sticky. A lot of these changes, just even though the powers that be might have preferred to undo some of these changes, they found that they were just too embedded in society and would have been too disruptive to do the changes that left to their own devices they would have l- liked to do.
0: That's really the rub of it, isn't it? I mean, ideas are a fine thing, but when you're the person invested with power, it's really difficult to actually, any kind of profound social change upsets a lot of people.
2: No man ruled alone, uh, even Napoleon.
0: Yeah. And you need to be like a political genius on Napoleon's level to even, you know, have an impact uh, in a lot of these cases where, you know, things are just, you know, societies have their own inertia and you've got to have a lot of muscle to change that inertia. Do you have a favorite episode or episodes?
2: So in general, the ones that I I like the most or most satisfied by are the ones that are the most self-contained that are are sort of telling a, a complete story from beginning to end. Sometimes these are the ones where I sort of step aside from my main narrative and cover something that's been going off on the sidelines, like, you know, episode 30, where I covered the the Greek War of Independence, which is sort of connected to the main narrative, but fairly oblique ways, or episode 36, The Wreck of the Medusa, where I covered colonialism. Uh, but the, the two that really stand out to me when I sort of think back and reflect on this, one is episode 31, uh, The Election of 1827, which is just to me was really satisfying because it was one of those all the threads come together episodes. Yes. Having all these very detailed episodes on particular topics. And just every so often you get an episode where you get to pull all those threads together and show how everything you've been talking about for a year intertwines and is all related and leads to this one climactic event. I found that really satisfying. The other one is... An episode that you had a part in, recording the cold open for episode 11, the Year Without a Summer, looking at the subsistence crisis that France underwent as a result of a volcanic eruption, which is a way to you know explore how ordinary people lived and what happened when those normal habits of subsistence were disrupted by an unforeseen, essentially active God, and how this interacted with politics. Most of the stats of like the people who were executed and caught up in the purges after Waterloo, if you look at the details, most of them were actually peasants participating in food riots who happened to get swept up by the political courts because often it was thought that politics was lurking at the the base of all these protests of people who really just wanted food. Is there an episode that you as a listener particularly enjoy?
0: Well, it's interesting. You actually have named a couple of the ones that that I, you know, as I wrote this question, there were a couple that I was thinking of, and you've actually named all of them. The Wreck of the Medusa one really stood out to me just, you know, that's something, that's such an iconic image. I mean, it's on the the cover of the Pogues album, for Christ's sake. I sort of knew a little bit of the story, but I really enjoyed just sort of delving in, not only to the the story itself, but the, the context. I thought that was a really fun way to do that. I do a lot of episodes that I talk about art a lot. And I think that even though it's an audio medium, obviously, but I think having that sort of Call back to an image that people can picture, you know, even if they're doing the dishes or driving somewhere or whatever when they're listening. Having that iconic image to refer back to and think, oh, I'm hearing the story behind this image that I can conjure up in my head I think is a really powerful technique. But thought that was very, very well used there. I should also say I'm really enjoying the, the slow ratcheting up of pressure as we approach 1830. Whenever I read about these events, you know intellectually that the conquest of Algeria is going on in the background as well well. But that really adds an interesting dimension to all these events that there's, uh, you know, as you say, different threads all coming together all at
2: once. I'm currently in the process of writing the episodes covering this and I'm doing a bit of a writing experiment, trying to do a very subjective sort of ground eye view of uh, what's going on and resist as much as I can, sort of the lessons of hindsight, the way we judge people based on what ended up happening and not necessarily what people knew at the time. You know, we'll see how that writing experiment turns out. But (laughs) this fascinating event. It's a very, very pivotal and often overlooked moment of history. I've done my best to try to cover this ramping up of the crisis from as many angles as possible.
0: I got to say, I, I kind of got this little uh, pang of envy because I really enjoy writing episodes about coups and revolutions and conspiracies. The pressure of those situations and the uncertainty really brings out a strange side of human nature where people are sort of almost half crazed and desperate and you know they, they've just got to act and they don't quite know what's going on. And those types of political pressure cooker events like that are always a lot of fun to me.
2: Some of the, the anecdotes that I'm looking forward to getting into about what individual actors were doing at the time, what they thought was happening, and how they were responding to that, the fears that they were experiencing, and it's very interesting, and I'm looking forward to uh, unspooling that over the next couple months, hopefully a small number of months, but we'll see.
0: Well, I think that's a good note to leave on, right? A preview of uh, upcoming attractions.
2: Thank you to Everett for giving his time to make this discussion happen. I had a lot of fun talking to him, as well as taking your questions. Just one quick announcement before we go. The SIEKLA is now on YouTube. I've started posting audio recordings of my early episodes online at youtube.com slash at the That's with an at sign before the Siecla. My goal is to post one or two episodes from the back catalog each week until I catch up. If you know someone who you think might like the show, but who isn't into the whole podcast thing, this is a new way to share the Siecla. If you're willing, I'd appreciate subscribing to the YouTube channel. Even if you never watch, and why would most of you, since you've already listened to all these episodes, a subscription will help make the show seem more popular, and thus attract new listeners. With that, I'm back to work writing the next regular episode, as we see how French writers responded to King Charles X's four ordinances, and the aggressive censorship they promised to impose. Join me next time for episode 40.